1: Go get a morning everybody, 9 a.m. That is a September morning, beautiful outside, the 24th of September. On a Saturday, the weather, 710K in U.S., 82 will be the high. And then 79 tomorrow for the MC1 Honor Run and back to work Monday, 83 degrees. Good to be back, good to be back on the job. A couple quick reminders before we go to Kevin Flynn. The MC1 Honor Run, we'll talk about it this morning, is tomorrow, Sunday, for the survivors and it's a big law enforcement moment. It's the ninth time we do it, and we'll talk about that this morning. And in a few moments, as soon as I say, light go green, we're going to talk about the October 8th dinner honoring radio talk show host Alan Berg's life with none other than Kevin Flynn. Also on the show this morning, Robert Spencer, about 9-11 and the Saudi connection. I uh, have always been surprised, although not alarmed, that mainstream press and the people in general keep – as far away from the Saudi Arabians as they can in their involvement in 9-11. I also want to talk to him about what's taking place in Iran. Sandy Kluff's on the radio show. It's a big highlight this morning. Uh, Sandy, of course, stepping aside, but I don't think for long. Radio talk show, Sandy Kluff, longtime friend. We got Kev. Uh, I don't see him up. To- oh, there he is. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, if they were all, as I say this, if every politician in the city of Denver were this man, we would have been in a much better place was a reporter for the Rocky Mountain News, worked at the Post. We became great friends. Um, I admire him immensely. He's a now, currently, is a a city councilman for the city of Denver and will be involved with us on October the 8th for Allen Berg. Councilman, good morning. Thanks for doing the show.
2: Hey, how you doing, Peter?
1: You know, actually pretty good. (laughs) Pretty good.
2: Yeah, that's great. Uh, It was great to see you uh, recently and know that you're doing well. Yeah. That's good to hear. You know, good to hear. I'd like the ado though. You, you always say, without without uh, more ado, but I, I would like a little
1: bit of ado. you know? <laughs> some so, further so ado. Ar- get, some <laughs> yes. more, get some of the Irish <laughs> do. Some <laughs> we'll ado is great. Some ado There's is good. not too much ado. You're standing, yeah, sure. you're standing re-election, and um, I'm a yeah. big supporter. Yeah, next Take a second, because you're doing good work, so give yourself a plug.
2: Oh, uh, well, you know, Southwest Denver is going to face a lot of growth pressures over the next term and a lot of uh, uh, pressure to absorb some of the growth, which we have to do. Uh, but I want to make sure it's done in the right way because Southwest Denver is not meant to be like, say, Capitol Hill or, or some of the more urban areas. We're a suburban area. And I think the, the zoning pressures that we are going to face are going to be immense uh, because there are some people who want to completely uh, redo the character of suburban zoning. Uh, so i intend to push back on that i think uh, we can't just build anything anywhere yeah. right uh, i think we made plans let's stick with them
1: Nah. well you would think but uh, you and i both know and i think everyone listening to the radio show knows the developers have their sway uh denver colorado since the beginning of federico peña and roy romer has been dominated by developers and bond daddies and law firms and the people that have, uh, maximized their, 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 their mm-hmm. investments. And the beat goes on. We had brother Jeff on last Saturday. I love Jeff. And we talked at great length about, you know, the next mayor, the next mayor is going to be key. And I the, agree. the first names, Kevin's with us, Kevin Flynn's with us. The first names I see out of the box are extremely disappointing. And we need someone to step into the city that says that's enough, whether it's the homelessness, the development of, um, Wherever they can put one up, they'll put one up. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Kev. How tough we've seen?
2: Yeah, we've seen some neighborhoods, uh, including my older son Brendan. And I think you met Brendan, sure, a long of course, many, many years ago. Of Course, I uh, was living in uh, in an attic efficiency apartment in Overland, and they've upzoned Overland, so single family zoning doesn't uh, doesn't exist there anymore. You can build duplex, all in the name of affordable housing. But guess what's happened? Sure, in- investors and speculators come in and they scrape off. The affordable family houses, and they put up massive duplexes that sell for twice as each side of the duplex sells for twice as much, what the original house there sold for, and that's driving people out. And it's not making housing more affordable; it's actually making it less affordable.
1: The term uh,
2: you know, look, at Villa, look at Villa Park, Sloans Lake, Jefferson Park.
1: Yeah. The term is, and it was we were talking the other night. I was at a get together. We we're talking about of all things, Neil Bush and Silverado. And, um, oh, my God. Well, yeah, that was way back. Yeah, think about that money. But they would call Blue Sky. They would um, – and we're actually where the soccer fields are right now on Parker Road. And they were speculating on that land. And they would say, okay, if the first floor is worth this, if I had a penthouse on the top floor, on the 28th floor, whatever it was, how much would that be worth? And then they'd get a loan on that. It was. It's not a dissimilar situation where you, mm-hmm. you take a piece of property and then do precisely um, – Councilman Kevin Flynn's here, what what they talk about doing. Then I've spent more time downtown and this homelessness, and now they want to give money to people, and and they also want to start, again, talking about, uh, you know, injection drugs, uh, having s- situations where people oh, come right. in and shoot dope. You've seen this, and that's, you know, that's the...
2: Yeah, the, that, was, that was the best vote I ever cast was oh, being the only no vote, the only no vote against uh, the uh, supervised injection site. I just don't believe that that is uh, the best way to do harm reduction. We, you know, people are overdosing all over the city, and to say uh, we should set up a site that can accommodate X number of uh, people a day injecting their their drugs. Uh, and no one has ever died in a, in a supervised injection site. I agree. But where, where do they end up dying?
1: They die upstairs. up They lived, die at but...
2: home. Sure. They, oh, they die along the Cherry Creek bike path. Absolutely. They die in the restrooms at a Starbucks. That's where you need to get the naloxone, sure. the Narcan kids, out into the community. And that's what would lower our overdoses, not to set up a place. Uh, we were told when that came up, there were like 8,000 people who inject drugs, PIDs, they call them. Uh, about 8,000 in the city, and they needed to inject three to five times a day. So let's say if it's five times a day, 8,000, that's 40,000 injections a day. You can't set up a site that can accommodate 40,000 injections. So people are going to overdose somewhere, and we need to get the antidote out there and save them so that they can can make the decision to change their lives and, and go into rehab. Having a single site just doesn't do it. What it does, and you saw it in Vancouver, what it does is it degrades the neighborhood where it's located and creates all sorts of of peripheral problems. And Denver doesn't need that. We have enough of it.
1: Every city that this is allowed in becomes more destroyed. And Mark Crowley, myself, and Stefan went up. And then actually we went up uh, to Seattle to see that too, which was on the venue. But Vancouver is a vision Mm -hmm. of hell. It truly is a vision of hell. And I challenge Albus Brooks, who... One said he had gone up there, and you could put one of those injection sites next to his home. I, th- I threw the BS flag. I said, let's, I said, "Where did you stay? Where did you eat?" You know, I, I, he's never responded. But if Albus went to Vancouver, you know, I went to the moon. You can't look at that and say, "Oh no, I'd like to have that next to my house." And but what what they sure. will do is, like Brother Jeff said, they'll put it next to Brother Jeff is where they'll put it. They won't put it in Cherry Hills. They won't put <clears> it, you know, in around the Country Club. They won't put it those places. But it is for another time. Coming up on October the 8th, and, yes. oh, my heavens, uh, the Allenberg Dinner, and for folks in the audience who are starting to sell, by the way, I, I spoke with um, with Albie, the Denver yeah. Press Club, the Hall of Fame Banquet, and it's, uh, it's, it's Sandra Dillard, uh, they're going to do B Harris, Mike Litwin, Kathy Walsh, and then in the end will be Allen, and you and I and Susan Ryman will be part of the um, – the Allenberg part of this. Talk about that, Kevin, if you would.
2: The uh, Denver Press Club Hall of Fame, we've been doing those dinners for uh, many, many years, and a lot of very well-known names in journalism. And this year we are particularly uh, 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 honored to have uh, B. Harris, the Urban Spectrum, uh, Sandra Dillard, uh, longtime Denver Post, uh, Kathy Walsh, and Mike who with whom I used to work at the Rocky Mountain News, uh, uh being in but we always have one spot for a posthumous uh, induction into the hall of fame and uh, i don't know how long they talked about it because i haven't been on the board of the press club since i don't know when i think i was president of the club in 90 or 91 <clears throat> and and my platform that year was please god don't let it close while i'm pressed right so it's doing well now it's come back it's been remodeled and so I don't know how long they've been talking about honoring uh, Alan or inducting him, but mm. this is the year now. And uh, you know, uh, it's fitting uh, because uh, what he did in talk radio, uh, which is a form of journalism, news, news dissemination, discussion, uh, civic discussion, what he did uh, kind of changed uh, the, the trajectory, I think, of talk radio in large part. Uh, it was happening already earlier. People like Joe Pine and whatnot, but that's what got him killed. That's what got. That's what put him on the radar of the of the Klan and uh, and the neo Nazis, and that's what got him killed. And uh, it's been 38 years now, almost 40 years. Think June, about it. June 18th, 1994. So yeah. Yep. It's uh, so it's it's time to uh, recognize not just him. But what he did and and the the light that he tried to shine on a lot of dark corners in society. Right.
1: I agree. And you were there with him. Oh yeah. You were um, there with him. Yeah. I um we've been over this many times. Kevin Flynn's here, Peter Boyle seven ten can you watch the morning show on Saturday. How many times we went to elected officials? How many times, Kevin, we, before you were even elected? And we we're just doing T V together. Yeah. How many times and I was I and I, and I'm so pleased that this is happening. And I think it has a lot to do with your influence. But I also, you know, Al, Alby did. He said, okay, and we had the initial meeting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they said, well, yeah, but I, I've had conversations. Why isn't this man in? And, you know, I think he belongs in the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. I truly do believe that. Or at least I believe he needs a, a street marker with, with respect. We have uh, Daddy Bruce Randolph. We have Dick Connor, We have um, Omar Jha, I believe, has a park bench even or a bus stop. They've marked us mm-hmm. from, from um, and there's nothing the on it. No, yeah, and and if we don't do it, and this is one of the Kevins here, one of the things we talked about, if we don't do it now, it may never get done. So uh, with through mm-hmm. the Press Club guys, the Hall of Fame banquet, it's the 8th of October. It's at 6 o'clock, and you can go to their website, and it's all there. And mm-hmm. you and I and Susan, and Susan, of course, was the last producer for Alan. Right. And, and uh, right. Lee Larson, I mean, there's so many wonderful people that, were around that time, and I, I believe this is um, talk radio is divided into before Alan's murder and after Alan's murder, and that's the mm-hmm. truth. Yeah. And I don't know what it is yeah. now. It
2: was uh, yeah. it was a wake up call, you know, that yeah. morning. Yeah, actually that evening, it made the news. It, it hit the news like a, you know, like a bomb uh, on the ten o'clock yeah. news. Yeah. It, it didn't happen, but you know, maybe a half hour or so before that. On yeah, about,
1: I think about yeah. 9, 9, 930 at night, I think is when they, when they, I use yeah. the word assassinate They assassinated <clears throat> him on the street about 930 at night. I got a phone call and from everybody Bur- sat up. Oh, yeah.
2: I, got to- uh, Harry, Harry and I, we were going downtown just yesterday to have dinner with our younger son and his wife and the new baby and his in-laws were in town. And we drove up Lodgeworth and we <laughs> went by where the old Jefferson 440 was <laughs> right there at the 4th of Lodgeworth. And it's now it's now a Walmart, yeah. but that's where Alan had dinner, uh, the, on the night he was mm-hmm. killed. Had dinner there and headed home. Uh, uh, he was with his ex-wife. He mm-hmm. dropped her off at the Cherry Creek Shopping Center, went home, and boom. Next thing you know, holy cow, dead in the driveway.
1: I was doing mornings here back then when we were at the it was Sandusky Broadcasting before it was Salem, and. And he took the show that I had. He did, He had 9 to noon, and I was doing um, 6 to six, 5 or 5 to 9 or whatever the early, early morning uh-huh. shift was. We would always have this transition phone call. Uh, if you understand radio, right. there's a hotline. And it has yeah. a red button and the phone ring. He knew the number. And uh, we'd say, good morning. I'd be in the final cast and everything. And he'd say, what's working? In other words, what topic seems to be carrying right. calls? And we said, uh, and I don't know, whatever, whatever the issue was that morning was just simply input because nobody told him how to do radio show, believe me. I mean, he was just picking up, what do you think? And we were going to meet, and it's really interesting because now my grandson is this little ball player, and my son was playing ball, and I said, you know, I got a little league game tonight. And he said, well, Judy's in town. And I <clears> said, all right, <throat> man, I said, I'll, we'll do it tomorrow, love you, good night, just love you, I just, I just said, I love you. And, never talked to him again. That was it. And, uh, yeah. he, he, but yeah. he, he told me this, you know, his ex wife was in town and I had a ball game with my son and that was that. And you think about stuff yep. like that a lot.
2: Definitely. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, they, they were waiting there, uh, like Colfax and Adams cause he was in yeah. the, he was in the 1400 blocks. So he was about halfway down the block from Colfax. 14,
1: 1445.
2: 1445. Yep. Yeah. Adams. Adams right. Street, yeah. And so they uh, they parked in the Taco John's lot, uh, parking lot there. They waited. Uh, four guys in a the car. They had the MAC-10 uh, machine pistol, fully automatic, converted. And uh, I think I mentioned this before. Some of your listeners might uh, recall this, and I'm sorry if, the, you know, if they've heard it already, but you might have a lot of new folks who haven't heard this. Uh, but... Uh, because Alan had uh, Judith with him in the car, they pulled into his driveway, and the, the the assassin's car was right there parked at the curb by that point because they followed the Volkswagen. He, he had a Volkswagen Beetle, mm-hmm. and he pulls into the driveway, and he sits there, and the guys are in the car, wondering what's going on, and Judith is in there, and the plan, uh, you recall this, the plan was they were going to go up to his, uh, his uh, unit, and they were going to call his, his mom in Chicago, uh, Ruth, and Because it was her birthday, I think, the next day. And they are going to call and wish her a happy birthday. But Alan says to Judith, he says, tell you what, some kind of beat. I want to get to sleep. Why don't I take you back to your car? She had left her car at the Cherry Creek Shopping Center. Why don't I take you back to your car and we'll call mom tomorrow or whatever. And she says, oh, okay. So he backs up, He puts it in reverse and takes off. <clears throat> and the guys in the car wonder, well, did, they, did they make us? Did he see us? Does he know what's going on? So he just goes down to Cherry Creek, drops Judith off. John comes back alone gets out of the car he had a cigarette in his mouth he had a, a, a shopping bag he had shaving cream mm-hmm. and a can of dog food for Fred the Airedale and uh, Bruce Pierce comes up the driveway and peppered him with uh, 13 rounds from the machine gun
1: and that was it and I firmly believe that that mindset of those murderers that night is floating around in this country again and uh, yeah, Berg.
2: too much of it. Yeah, it, it, it ebbs and it flows yeah. over time. Oh, absolutely. It's always, always an undercurrent it's there, and sometimes it's uh, it's a tidal
1: wave. And I, I think it's raised yeah. its ugly head one more time. And good lord, so, yeah. Yeah, so it's the two thousand twenty two Hall of Fame banquet. It's between six and eight, and it's uh, what's the hotel name? I can't think of name name of the hotel. Um ah, Sinesta, I think the Sinesta the name. Yeah, the it's Sin- a
2: block up from the yeah club. from the club. It's right, old Holiday Inn. Yeah, it's the old c- Holiday Inn on oh. Glenarm. And I forget and, the name of it now. Yeah, this, I just know to go there.
1: I think it's right? a, the Sinesta, I think. Everybody's telling me that. I mean, <laughs> Sinesta. Yeah, 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 yeah I got 26 text the, messages uh, just came in. Sinesta, Peter. So <laughs>
2: we were, Is Albie listening? <laughs> no, it's Albie real, Siegel, by the way, oh. but, uh, who you mentioned, he's the manager of the press club, just yeah. so folks know. And we used to do this dinner in the press club up on the second floor, but we think – uh, over the years, it's grown large, larger than that room can handle. I, I was inducted into the Hall of Fame, I think, in twenty fourteen, wow. twenty thirteen or fourteen, and we had it in the upstairs room. Uh, but we've outgrown that, and uh, it's one of our fundraisers through the year to keep the club going. Uh, that and the Damon Runyon dinner in the spring—they're uh, good fundraisers for us. They really are. Uh, hey, I do mean to ask you no, something, sure. about me, Peter. What's of it, what's it like? To wake up, and it ain't dark outside.
3: <laughs> okay.
2: Oh, I mean, man. this is amazing. I still, I, I still wake up. I,
1: I still wake up early. i you're still a. um oh, for Kevin, this is the, yeah. nine o'clock is
2: the time you used to get off the air and yeah. and, and, no, I, and be done for the day with your with your
1: show. Well, we're we're doing you know we do that YouTube stuff and I, I you've you know come in and do the shoot with us and we're doing some editorial writing and of course I'm still with Chuck and Julie but. It really has, mm-hmm. a, it's, it's just great, but it gives you a whole week, uh, to, mm-hmm. to do three or four hours of radio gives you, uh, and yep. it we're not, you know, it isn't as intense as it once was because I got a week and I got a young kid who's working right. on the job with me. So it's really, has worked out pretty cool. But again, for everybody, I think there was going to be like 192 seats for this dinner and, mm-hmm. if you, and so many people loved him. And if you want to be there and, um, they asked me who the other person should be there. And I said, Susan, and who is retiring now from KOA, mm-hmm. and you and myself. And uh, we will be there. And um, again, thank you to everybody. And um, yeah. to, to see Litwin and all it'll be a whale of a night. So, yeah. You, hey, I just want to mention
2: sure. uh, about the book uh, the book that Gary Gerhardt right. and I did, uh, the late Gary Gerhardt now. Um, we did the book called The Silent Brotherhood, mm-hmm. which is about the, the gang that uh, the paramilitary gang that assassinated him and did a bunch of other stuff, stole from armored cars, committed another murder, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I found out recently that although it went out of print, it came out in 1989. There were two paperback editions, 91 and 95. After the OKC bombing, uh, it got reissued. And uh, I found out recently that you can get a fresh printed copy. Oh, wow. (laughs) Excuse me, Simon Simon and Schuster, excuse me, Simon and Schuster, which, uh, now contains the publishing house that originally did it mm-hmm. through Macmillan. Uh, they have something called print-on-demand, and you can order it. And so Harriet ordered a few copies. Good. I was down to my last copy, and it was the one that uh, Gary signed uh, autographed mm-hmm. for me. Uh, so I got a couple of fresh copies here, Good. which is amazing. Well, like, you know, like
1: the like the book came out in eighty nine originally. Just yeah. frightening resurgence and mm-hmm. the insanity that goes with that, and they remind me so much of those men and the fights that we went through and the Bud Farrell fights and the Roderick, you call him Rick Elliott and right. all of those, right. those, and like I said, there was a great line and I don't know, it was, it was Socrates, Aristotle, someone said that little boys kill frogs in sport, but frogs die in earnest. And um, mm-hmm. he was the mockingbird and they they killed the mockingbird. and. What did Atticus say, you can shoot anything you want, but don't shoot the Mockingbird. And so it'll be a great night. It'll be an emotional night. It's about time. And you have been so significant. This is uh, now Councilman Kevin Flynn, but then reporter Kevin Flynn became a wonderful friend through the trials that we all went through. But you always always had the North Star. And um, you knew that this needed to be done. And you were there every meeting. We went to the press club. And you were always there, Kevin. That means an awful lot. So... I love you dearly. Um, the best to Harriet and the kids and everybody. We'll talk again soon because I think we're going to do a, a rehearsal on what we're going to do that night. So
0: anyhow, mm-hmm. break a leg.
1: Break a leg. Go get them. Hey, take care. Have a good day. Have Thanks. a good week. You too, man. Thanks. All right, everybody. 303-696-1971. Good morning. 82, the high. 79 tomorrow. Coming up, nine eleven and the Saudi Arabians. And I've been wanting to do this, um, and there's no one better than Robert Spencer. I'm going to about Iraq, too, with the revolt that seems to be taking place. What significance does that have? But they got away with it. And I also want to talk about blood diamonds this morning. All the scepters of the queen. and they, Those are blood diamonds, conflict diamonds. Uh, and then Sandy Clough, radio talk show host, is on at 11. Uh, Don McBrainy, who has the summit, which will be the end tomorrow for the MC1. So, David Ellis, Jerry Creek, you heard me telling you about taking your valuables to David. David, to get fortune in cash. David's remained such a great friend through all of this. Secure appraisals from David for all the valuables you've tucked away in your home. It's still true. Sh- share all the other reasons, see David, just in case you don't have a Rolex watch, rare coins, or a T-set. See David for all your meaningful gift-giving occasions. David is my friend. David Ellis Jewelers, just the right item, just the right price for all the special people that mean the most. Antique watches, emerald pennants, gold necklaces, and diamond rings. Trusted jeweler, been buying precious metals and antiques in Colorado for decades, Dazzling cases filled with hundreds of new and used pieces your loved ones will treasure. This is a good man, David Ellis Jewelry. See for yourself. Look for the black awning corner of 3rd and Clayton at Cherry Creek North. 3rd and Clayton. Explore davidellisjewelry.com. My friend David Ellis, 303-322-8779. 303-322-8779. Back with the one and only Robert Spencer. Stay here. All right, 27 after the hour of 9, 9.27. It's Saturday, the 24th of September. Beautiful day, 82. Tomorrow, great motorcycle weather for the MC1 Honor Run. Peter Boyle is coming up. Robert Spencer from Jihad Watch in the law offices of Danny Kaplis. And when I got to do the Saturday show and Danny said, sure, I'll, you know, I'll be with you as a sponsor, it means so much. And Danny, truly, I mean, I've been around Danny, I don't know, before I went to his wedding and the only lawyer in Colorado history to win five straight multimillion-dollar jury verdicts in motor vehicle crash cases. That is really saying something. And he's been a wonderful friend. He's been a great family friend, highly successful firm, great lineup, includes these six former deputy DAs who now use their courtroom experience to help survivors of serious crashes. Danny believes, and he said it many times, talks cheap, experience counts, and the results matter. If you got just want a question answered or you're not sure what to do next, for real, if you need Dan's help, call him at 303 907 5003, 303 907 5003, or hit Dan Law, Caplis Law at CAPLIS, com. He truly is the foundation of great success and dedication, and he's a good man. 303 907 5003. Without further ado, as we said with Kevin, I've been thinking about him for two weeks. Please say good morning. Welcome back from Jihad Watch. And again, a lifetime friend, Robert Spencer joins us. Mr. Spencer, good morning and thank you.
3: Hey, good to talk to you as always, Peter.
1: Thank you, sir. There's, I was, you know, we're going to talk about 9-11 and Assad's, but so much is taking place right now in Iraq. Um, or excuse me, in, in Iran. Uh, there's upheaval in the streets. What What do we make of that?
3: It's very exciting. Peter, really, I don't want to overstate the case, but I do think that the regime is severely threatened. It could fall. Of course, Joe Biden could bail it out any minute. But uh, at this point, there is so much dissatisfaction, so much outrage against the regime, so much open defiance. People are saying, well, you know, we had demonstrations in Iran a couple of times before, and nothing happened, the regime just cut the Internet and started killing people wholesale, and things quieted back down. Now, that could very well happen this time, but I can tell you, and I've been watching, I was watching both times before, and I'm watching now, I do not see, uh, I, mean, I do see now much more open defiance of the regime, much more than I did yep. in the earlier
1: demonstrations. I, they are now burning the Iranian flag and women are burning their burqas. And I never thought, cause I, you know, i I followed the mullahs, not on the level that you have, but they, they never tolerated dissent at all. And now watching people have the wherewithal, or at least the, the, the courage to step up and do that. I'm with you. I mean, I think it's just an amazing thing to watch right now. Um, it is there's possible there's always you know probable and possible endings how do you see it working out well
3: i see that if there is no nuclear deal and so the the regime doesn't get a new influx of cash then the regime could very well fall if however biden sends them i mean mm-hmm. you understand they would get 7 billion dollars right away if a nuclear deal were concluded, and that's before any congressional oversight, so the con- Congress could theoretically say, "No, we don't approve of this deal," but the mullahs already have the seven billion, and they're not going to just send it back. No. So the deal would immediately prop up the regime and give them plenty of money to mow down all these protesters. They don't care how many of their own citizens they kill, and quiet the resistance yet again. But if that does not happen, then it very well could happen that a lot of these IRGC guys, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, and the police who are fighting against their own people and their own sisters and their own daughters and so on, they're going to get disgusted and they could switch sides yep. and or just give up and the regime could fall.
1: I finished uh, just actually almost the end of the book. I have it out of my truck on um, on Castro when they finally – Dump Batista on uh, that Christmas Eve or rather New Year's Eve, and when they realized that the military and the police had begun to side with Castro's movement, and the same thing happened inside of Afghanistan where the Afghan army folded and and if the you know how 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 in the military how much strength does a military sway in or is it the mullahs that hold the sway? In Iran,
3: well, it's all the mullahs. Yeah, uh, but there are plenty of people who could be swayed just by simple humanity yeah. to say this is enough, and I'm not going to be the muscle for the mullahs anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean, remember when, and we were we were talking about uh, about Brezhnev and Gorbachev and the final ending it. There was two things that happened. One was Afghanistan, but the other one was they could see West and they could see Levi's and the Beach Boys and they could see drag racing and they could see rock and roll music. And that's what they wanted. And as long as, you know, back to the Stalin days where, you know, we had to have radio free Europe to try and beam some semblance of news into Soviets. But when they got to see what the other side was doing, that's in Gorbachev even talks about it. It's like people saw you know, or listened to the Beach Boys or drag racing or Levi's or any of the above, and they wanted it, and they didn't, yes. want, they didn't want the Stalin. And I wonder how much of that is taking place in, in as we speak in Iran.
3: Quite a lot, Peter, uh, for years. I wrote The Complete Infidel's Guide to Iran back in 2016, and I have quite a lot in that book about how there is a great deal of dissent Behind closed doors that particularly young people in Iran, they wear the hijab, they conform Mm -hmm. outwardly, but they get inside to some place where they feel safe. And out comes the beer Mm -hmm. and off come the hijabs and they uh, have a party like Westerners and then put it all away and go back out. Now, that was years ago. Um, There's also tremendous dissatisfaction with the regime. That is expressed behind closed doors, and so what's extraordinary now is that it is being voiced openly. I remember in the previous demonstrations a few years ago, there were some people scattered here and there saying, "Down with the regime! We don't want an Islamic republic," and it was utterly shocking. And now that's being sounded all over the country. Yeah.
1: There's a great theory, you know. History always runs in theories, and. Um when men revolt and why they revolt. And it's apparent to many of these, especially very, you know, the last 300 years of historians, men revolt on their knees getting up. They do not revolt on their backs. And if you check or watch the French Revolution, maybe an aside, but if you watch revolutions, it's when they get to their knees is when they revolt. And, you know, and and the other part of it is, you know, the internet, you can see so much. Of what is on, remember the Soviets used to call it west of the wall, on the other side of the wall. And there were events and freedom and things were taking place that the Soviets had tried to stomp down for so many years. And and then, of course, could could no longer hold the line. Well, you know, it's the same
3: thing in Iran, because, of course, it's only been since 1979. Now, you know, I was 17. In 1979. And I'm sure there are plenty of guys who are 60 and women who are 60 in, in, and around that age in Iran who remember very well mm-hmm. growing up in a vastly different society. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. And
3: they haven't been quiet about it. They've told their children about it. And the, Iran has always been more Western-oriented, or at least for the last 100 years or so, uh, much more Western-oriented than, say, Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. or Pakistan. And so there's always been this undercurrent of dissatisfaction with the Islamic regime. And so now it's coming out in the open.
1: We're going to talk next about the Sauds. I have I have read, although it's just a read, that the same model that you're talking about is behind closed doors that in Riyadh or in the, you know, in the very wealthy parts of Saudi Arabia, the women wear Dior and... I, I witnessed um, uh, leaving uh, Dubai women, When well, as soon as the airplane took off, took off the traditional dress and there they were, you know, in fabulous, fabulous clothes. And I've read the same thing it takes place in Saudi Arabia. Uh, you can get if you're in somebody's home and it's, you know, you can get a drink. Don't know if it's true, but I've read it that no matter how suppressive it gets. But, you know, you just want to hope it's true.
3: Well, you know, I experienced that myself sort of indirectly. Uh, About 10 years ago, uh, I was speaking in L.A. and was uh, very kindly put up by the hosts in this hotel on Rodeo Drive, where all the fashionable, the high fashion clothing stores are. And it was kind of interesting because one of the most prominent features of the street as I would walk around was a lot of women in niqabs Hmm. and burqas and they were saudis i was told who were shopping for high fashion that they would never wear out on the street in their own country they would wear they wouldn't even wear it out on the street in america but they wear it behind closed doors Yeah.
1: Yeah. no i again you you can't keep things down the the history of the world or the history of our nation or the history of the world and in general, you know, it, it says that. It says, you know, you can't suppress it. And it goes back to when men revolt and why. And I was so glad I had – we have you on the show this morning. Let me transfer, if I can, to the Sauds. 21 years ago, the United States has attacked these horrible attacks. And the question of whether Saudi Arabia provided funds and other assistance for the worst terrorist attack in this country – Always remember the 19, there are al-Qaeda terrorists who jacked the four commercial airliners on that morning. Fifteen of them are Saudis. And, of course, bin Laden is a member of one of Saudi Arabia's wealthiest families. And the Bush administration downplays the Saudi connection, suppresses evidence that links those Sauds to the funding of extremism and terrorism. And the Bush White House didn't want to upset the relationship with this world's largest oil-producing country. Also, as I said, Bandar was Bandar Bush. That's a question in there somewhere, Mr. Spencer, if you would.
3: Well, you know, Saudi Arabia is clearly not a real friend of the United States, and it's a lot, it's an alliance of convenience, and we wouldn't even need that if we were energy independent, as we were, actually, just a couple of years ago. And it's all because of oil interests, and apparently – The Bush family had oil interests that led them to want to protect the Saudis. It's kind of unconscionable, though, when there was so much evidence, as even in the material that's been released from the 28 pages of Saudi involvement in 9/11 from the 9/11 Commission report. uh, When it was all finally, when when what was released of it was finally released, there's plenty of evidence of high-level Saudi involvement in the attacks, and it's horrible that George W was walking around holding hands with the king after that and uh, acting as if the Saudis were just as against this as, say, the British or French. Uh, This is something that has never been followed up on because there are too many people tied in economically with the Saudis at the high levels of the U.S. government. And that's one of the foremost problems of our age, really, that we have these American officials who are beholden to various foreign interests.
1: The, the role the Saudi royal family and the Bandars, and my understanding from my reading is Bandar's daughter is now the Saudi ambassador to the United States to try and show you that you know, how, much, how much they're able to do with what they're able to do with. But you have these powerful Saudi individuals who played, I believe, played a role in funding or assisting the 9-11 attacks, but refused now. They can't be transparent. They can't open these things up and may in fact have uh, directly provided assistance to certainly to Khalid al-Mendar and Nafal al-Hamzi. Those are the two that I've read about. They're the first of the Jackers to arrive in the United States in 2000. They came out of Malaysia, and they lived for about a year and a half in San Diego. And there's a connect to Bandar's wife through that. I mean, it really is a a smoking gun.
3: Yeah, and they're all tied up together, and yet— For a smoking gun to matter, you have to have people who are willing to follow up and prosecute, and yet the people who would do that are all in the same club, so it ain't going to happen.
1: So, yeah, I mean, I know the lawsuit, and there's this uh, security of the Saudis' role, and there's a massive federal lawsuit in federal court in Manhattan brought by the families of the 9-11 victims. They maintained that senior Saudi officials were complicit, and the families were blocked for 15 years. One of Denver's most powerful law firms, the Brownstein Law Firm, has been hired by the Saudis. Uh, Podesta has been Patton Bog, you know, Obama's uh, uh, law firm. They're all hired influence peddlers to stop these lawsuits. What does that say?
3: Well, it says that we can be bought. And <laughs> yeah. as long as we can be bought, we're not free. You know, uh, there's not justice for all people. There's not e one system of law for all people. There's not um, equality of rights before the law, but rather just a one law for the privileged and the rich and the well-connected and another for everybody else.
1: What do you think we would... Robert Spencer from Jihad Watch, Peter Boyle, 710 KNUS. Um I've also... Shows you I need to get a life about it. But I read Omar El-Bayomi, and he tells the FBI he had met with two men by chance, winky-winky, at this restaurant in L.A., and agreed to help them. They're the guys that came out of Malaysia. They're on the airplanes that day. Uh, they're giving him money. They got them Social Security cards. Uh, Osama uh, bin Saad, who is that Saad living in San Diego, uh, his wife got tens of thousands of dollars in checks from the wife of, uh, of Bandar what and he's involved so mr spencer you know what are we supposed to think well i, I can
3: only say that we're supposed to think that they don't care yeah. and they don't care that we know because they know that we'll never be held accountable and they know they'll never be held accountable because they're still entrenched in power
1: and then we get to the 28 pages the bush administration and Uh, And the Obama administration also, you know, blocked all of those releases as well. I got to be sort of semi-friends with Senator Bob Graham of Florida, who was a co-chair on the Congressional Review and uh, private conversations. He was convinced, and he's a very good man, convinced that the terrorists in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Saudi charities and Saudi stakeholders and um, he had that line. He said they removed the cork in the end of the bottle. It was a great line. Yeah, that's true. Wow. So I don't know I know I'm at the point where I say, okay, what are we to do? And you know, they marked the twenty first anniversary very mildly this year. And I um as a boy growing up, you know, Pearl Harbor Day was a big deal. And I, I and you know, and I as a, I just finished up when I was office book Emperor about Hirohito. It's a new new public a new publication. Hirohito was up to his eye. I- eyebrows and in the attack on on Pearl Harbor and of course MacArthur and they get him get him off the hook for whatever reasons and I think to myself the Saudi Arabians really are they they really are Hirohito aren't they
3: oh yeah sure absolutely that's a that's a good analogy actually in regard to Hirohito As far as I know, and you can correct me if I'm Mm -hmm. wrong on this, because you read the book and I haven't. But what I understand is that MacArthur wanted to sort of de facto exonerate Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He thought he would be a good uh, focus, a symbol for unity and accommodation with the Americans. Since he had accepted the occupation and accepted that the Japanese had lost the war, that it would be a good way to ensure uh, that the Japanese would not... End up pursuing some sort of long standing resistance.
1: You're absolutely and right. No, you're absolutely right.
3: Meanwhile, it's not it, 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 in, with regard to Saudi Arabia, it's a totally different situation. Uh, it's just people being protected because of their own narrow business interests and the fact that you have American business. I mean, if, if it had been that MacArthur and Hirohito were in on some massive business endeavor together, then that would be a big scandal yeah. that yeah. he had let him walk yeah. for that. But he did so for reasons that are entirely understandable and defensible. Well and when you come to the Saudis, it's a very different situation. Well,
1: although I keep thinking, since, the, and this is why I come back for let me let me do this. I need to take a pause and come back. I want to come back because the Saudis, it used to be Saddam was the buffer. And the Bushes screwed that all up. And now on one side or the mullahs on the other side of the sods that we need the sods. And so having needing the sods now to be a buffer against the mullahs, we are willing to let them do whatever they want to do. Would you put Mr. Spencer on hold? Uh, And we'll come back with Robert Spencer, 710 KNUS Denver's talk station. Good morning, 82, the high today, 79 tomorrow. Um, I'll talk about the Queen's Diamonds. Also coming up, Sandy Clough is on the radio show. And studies have shown that risk factors of heart attacks – Diabetes, dementia increase as our hormones and metabolism decline. I can't tell you what, what I I began, I think it's like, I don't know, we were talking in her office 10 years, 11, 12 years ago with Dr. McCallum. She's not only a great physician, she's a wonderful friend. Now Dr. Watt at Cynogenics, helping you get your metabolism and hormones balanced and healthy with their elite health evaluations. They'll take a detailed look at all your body systems, your brain, your bones, your muscles, your heart, your lungs, and then a supervised plan to help you lose weight and gain lean muscle mass and increase your mental clarity. Call today and you schedule this elite health evaluation and get a complimentary food allergy test. And believe me, that means something. It's normally 850 bucks, 840 bucks. I urge you. I can't tell you. Cynogenics, Dr. McCallum, Dr. Watt, seven two zero three eight seven three six eight one. 387 3681 Fall is in the air. I think today's the first day of fall. Maybe yesterday was. And make it, make it a thing. So I'm going to change my life. 720-387-3681. Just make the phone call. The website's denver.cynogenics.com. 720-387-3681. Morning, everybody. Nine, uh, there it is, 9.51, nine minutes before the hour. The General and Kenny, Rapid City this morning. 82 will be the high, 79 on Sunday and Monday, 83. The MC1 honor run is tomorrow. And coming up with we'll folks on the show, uh, again, the uh, motorcycle gathering for the ninth time. A fundraiser for the families of uh, officers and officers who have been wounded and down. And it's a very powerful moment for everybody. In the meantime, simply the best. When I ask people who's the best, this guy is always in the top five. From Jihad Watch is Robert Spencer. We opened the interview talking about what's taking place in Iran today. We talked about 9-11 and the Saudis. And the miscalculations of the Bushes, whether they're intentional or not, leads me always to who I really think George Bush is. So the buffer between the the Mullahs and the rest of the oil producers was, was always Saddam. So Bush and Cheney knock him out of the box. Now they need the SADs. Do you think I'm out of line in thinking about it in, that, in those terms? No, that makes perfect sense.
3: I mean, after all, Saddam is not uh, recognized today as such, but he was a real force for stability. In the region. And a lot of people would be outraged to hear that because they would say, well, he was a bloodthirsty dictator and he put people in filing cabinets and he did all sorts of other tortures. And how can you say that? Well, I'm not defending the man. There's no doubt that he was a bloody dictator. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. But there's also no doubt about the fact that after he was removed, we saw the consequences immediately in the in the degeneration of Iraq. And all the reverberation that that had in the surrounding areas, we should also, I mean, I think chiefly in that we should remember that it was then that ISIS oh, yeah. formed oh, out of the disaffected Sunnis oh. that were fighting against the Shiite government mm-hmm. we were propping up in Baghdad.
1: I've always said ISIS is George Bush's Frankenstein. He created, mm-hmm. he created ISIS. The, the, the Saddam regime would have never tolerated one of those people. I mean, I've yeah. I've read many books about Saddam. I'm certainly not an expert or reader, but how many of those religious fanatics he was good for? I mean, in terms of killing, he, you know, they they left. He interestingly enough, they left Christians alone. The Christians. There didn't, you go. They didn't. Pu- they, very they, they, they didn't. The Christians. I, I met a lot of Christians in Lebanon. They were, um, they had fled, ISIS. But they told me there about There were
3: over a million Christians oh, absolutely. in Iraq when absolutely. Saddam was there. And now there's just a fraction of that. Most of them were uh, f- uh, most of them fled, many of them were killed. Yes. But Saddam, you're right. I mean Tariq Aziz, the was vice a Christian. president, was a, Christian. There was a Christian. And there yeah. were many Christians. Yeah. He did protect the Christians. Yeah. He was actually kinder to the Christians than to the Shia. Yes. And uh in any case the Christians the Christian community has been decimated. Since he was removed,
1: I met a Christian um, Iraqi in um, in Lebanon, in Beirut, who had been educated at NYU and he had a pharmacy in Baghdad. And he was a he was a I wasn't a Maronite. I think he was Orthodox. But long story short, he said, you know, Saddam left us alone. In fact, he said, we as long as, you know, we paid attention and paid the taxes and stayed out of trouble. Saddam Hussein was was probably one of the better ruthless dictators in the Middle East to be a Christian under. Does that make sense? Oh yeah,
3: no, there's no doubt about it, Peter. In Saddam Hussein's Iraq was a much better place for Christians in the Middle East than pretty much any other country in the Middle East.
1: So with another minute or so left, and Robert Spencer from Jihad Watch, we'll come back now. What we're watching inside of 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 Iran. Our best hope is that the regime would topple. Who would replace it?
3: Well, that's the, that's the big problem, and that is that there's no opposition leader. There's no opposition. There's no telling what could happen if the regime is toppled. This is the consequence of the ruthlessness of the Islamic regime, that there is no recognizable leader of the opposition. This is just the people rising up. So what would they do? If the mullahs fled, if the mullahs were toppled, it's anybody's guess. There is the, uh, the M-L-K, mm-hmm. uh, that is the M-E-K, um, excuse me, that is the, uh, the Mujahideen, the people's Mujahideen, which uh, a lot of people on the right, Ruolf Giuliani and others, have endorsed. I'm a little suspicious of their intentions. I'm not sure that they would be much different from the Islamic regime that's there. Uh, there is, of course, also the the uh, latest member of the Palavi
1: yeah. dynasty. Yeah, I see them.
3: So they could bring him back and ba- make
1: him the Shah. Baby Shah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I, I wonder could happen. Anything can happen in that country, Mr. Spencer. Yep. You're always the best. Um, and we when we were tagged through the anniversary, of 21 years of 9/11, and it just went by like. Let's ignore it. And I'm thinking, indeed, how, how how significant is that? Take care of yourself, sir. We'll talk again asap. Robert Spencer, Job. give the website if you would, please, before you go. We lost him. Apologize. Um, we go we'll take a turnaround here and come back and open lines. And then uh, Sandy Kleps on the radio show. Uh, Don McBain, who un- owns the summit, where the uh, end of the of of the run tomorrow will be. The MC One Foundation Run ends there. I want to talk about the queen and the blood diamonds. And open lines talk about what you want to talk about. But after Queen Elizabeth's death, there are people around the world that are demanding the return of diamonds. They're called blood diamonds or conflict diamonds. Uh, one of the aspects of, of colonial rule, whether it's the British, the French, or you fill in the blank, is you steal. These are stolen diamonds. The diamonds that have seen Queen Elizabeth through the longest reign, they're blood diamonds. What do you think? And it's open lines, 303-696-1971. 82 will be the high.